I've got a bit of Presbyterian background um, behind me, and I noticed when you're in Presbyterian circles, all the debates in Presbyterian circles are about Calvinism and Arminianism and those kind of doctrines of grace. And then I noticed that when we got, because we were planted out of a charismatic church, no one actually seemed to care that much about all of that stuff. Everyone cared about eschatology. All right? Now, eschatology is kind of end time stuff. All right? I remember there was a guy uh, in the early days of the project that came to the church. And uh, soon after he came to the church for a couple of Sundays, he went actually down to the main office of Toowoomba City Church and hit up the receptionist at the front about what her view on eschatology in the end times was. And she was kind of, she didn't really know because he thought if he found out hers, he would find out what ours was. Soon after that, I went over to his house and we were, um, we were talking, I actually bought a motorbike off them. And um, one of the first questions he asked me after we sealed the deal about the motorbike is he goes, hey, what do you think about the eschatology? What do you think about the rapture? And I'm just going, oh, look, here we, here we go. We're into the, the land of having discussions and debates about uh, eschatology. Uh, I have been a bit of a John Piper fan, and um, I remember hearing that John Piper got, uh, had organised to have uh, four really, really smart guys way above my pay grade come in and talk about the prophecies and how the whole end times thing is going to work about Jesus coming back and I thought this would be really good it's like four really smart guys having a discussion for two hours I'm going to have this sorted by the end of it (laughs) I didn't have it sorted by the end of it at the end of it what I learned is that four really smart guys who are higher trained more highly trained than me couldn't agree on how the end times are going to take place Um, look in case you don't know who here has actually heard of pre-mill post-mill and A-mill. Has anyone heard of that? Yeah, cool. So there's this passage in Revelation 20, right, that talks about a thousand years, which is a millennium. Um, and it's basically people have got different views on where this thousand years is going to happen uh, before or after Jesus comes back or are we in the middle of it right now? Um, that's kind of one of the things that people hang, hang things on when it comes to eschatology, right? And I want to just say to you, I'm not a pre-mill pre-millennium, post-millennium or a-millennium, I'm a pan-millennium. It'll all pan out in the end, all right? That's pretty much my deal, okay? I've never been a big fan. I've had to do some uh, theological study in uh, stuff that has to do with eschatology and it makes my head spin, all right? Um, And I think, I'm just, this is kind of full disclosure, I think that I've got plenty to do without needing to know all the details about what happens in the end, right? Now, as everyone who follows Jesus here, so is everyone cool with me saying Jesus will come back one day? Okay, you cool with that? Is everyone cool with the fact that he needs to have a detailed plan about what he's doing, but I don't? Is everyone cool with that? And like you don't? It's like, as long as he's got a plan, I'm cool with that, all right? But what actually happens sometimes, and we're going to see this today in the passage that we're looking at, and I think sometimes what God does is he pulls the the curtains back you know if there was a production happening on stage here he'd pull the curtain back and let you see a little bit of backstage and you just go well, well, well how does that how does that fit in with that and what do you what is it you know and you have all these questions about how it all plugs in and then he just pulls the curtain back you just go that that's enough that's all you need and that's the kind of thing that we um that we have uh, on our plate today with uh, with mark the cool thing about preaching through books of the bible is you have to deal with stuff that you wouldn't naturally be drawn to. So I think, is is my confession, someone will quote me as saying this and, and it'll make me evil. But um, the bottom line is, I think, given 
not preach you know if i didn't preach through books of the bible would i ever naturally gravitate toward preaching on end times prophecy i don't think so (laughs) It, it may never happen except for the fact that it's in the bible so it has relevance and it is important all right so i just that that's kind of the tension for me it's like obviously god said it because he wants us to know some stuff what does he want us to know well hopefully today you'll see in this passage i think um what's central in this passage is not so much knowing the details about what's going to happen uh, but something else which we'll get to now so if you've got your bible um you can open up to mark 13 and we'll start at verse 1 as jesus came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him look teacher what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings now that herod's temple took up about one-sixth of the space in jerusalem massive all right so it would have been impressive they've obviously um sat down on a hill and just gone that's pretty impressive and it was and jesus said to him do you see these great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down now some stones have actually escaped the destruction of the uh the temple there was uh, the fall of jerusalem in ad 70 where um jerusalem fell and the, the whole temple was actually uh, substantially trashed um, it was a massive thing and the, the the lower um sorry the southeast corner of the temple platform was about 200 feet above the kidron valley um, there's lots of porticos uh, cloistered courts beautiful colonnades um, josephus the jewish historian tells us that the, that the stones of the temple were 11 meters long three and a half meters high and five and a half meters wide I think about that there's no d10 cut coming in there to make that happen right no you know 20 ton excavators or whatever it is pulling those things into place they've obviously worked out how to do it but you can imagine they're sitting there again this is really impressive uh this temple really really big and there's a sense here with the uh disciples like they're a bit kind of incredulous it's like this is really magnificent and this is going to this is going to get torn down and it's got a little bit of a feel about it like uh, the time of Noah, you know. It's like the temple, Jesus has previously said, look, the temple hasn't been doing what it needs to be, do- needs to be doing and so it's going to get pulled apart. There's a sense of judgment about it. And uh, I think Mark 13 actually is, a, is the start of Jesus being um, even more earnest than what he has been. So let's keep going from verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished now that is a good question isn't it it's a very human question like just think about that you've heard something magnificent in a tragic way i guess something huge is going to happen so can you just let me know when it's going to be like i need to you know i'll put an appointment in my outlook calendar you know and we'll just we'll be cool it'll be cool i'll know that on the 27th of january year 70 or whatever it is it's it's all going to happen you know but what does jesus say and jesus began to say to them see that no one leads you astray so you know sometimes i think jesus uses some political tricks have you you noticed that politicians answer the question they wanted the person to ask instead of the one they actually did and this is kind of what jesus does it's like uh jesus can you just give us a couple of couple of tips you know just help us to know when this is all going to happen he goes just be aware be careful be on your guard see that no one leads you astray many will come in my name saying i am he and they will lead many astray and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars don't be alarmed 
this must take place. But the end is not yet. Notice that. I mean, I'm sure that you've heard lots of people say things like, man, there's so many wars and earthquakes and tragedies happening. It must be the end times, right? Do you notice what Jesus just said? When all that stuff happens, that's not the end. <laughs> all right? That has to come before the end, but it's not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pain. So you think about a woman in labor. It's, it's not the end. We're not close to when the baby's being born. Um, it's just something that has to happen on the way. Uh, and, and it's a nice little positive note in a pretty earnest passage there. It's like something good is actually coming, isn't it? You know, I mean, the birth of a baby is a good thing. But be on your guard. For they'll deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. That's a good memory verse for the kids, isn't it? So you'll be hated by all for my sake it's like that's you know you're in the middle of the night and you can't sleep because you're worried about something you, that's a good scripture isn't it it's like i'm going to be hated by everyone it's like that's not going to help you sleep right but here's the thing it is actually going to be the case but the one who endures to the end will be saved but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be let the reader understand you get it I'll keep going. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor any of his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard, I've told you all things beforehand. Now, I, it did cross my mind that I could not even preach today. We could just come and I could read that passage. You guys could have a five-minute discussion, work out what it means, and then we could all just go home. Is anyone just a tad confused about what Jesus is actually talking about? Just a tad? Yeah? Now, you just better believe that there's a whole bunch of debate about what Jesus is talking about. All right? Huge amounts of debate. So uh, if you came to church today and you heard that we're doing end time stuff, eschatology, and it's like Peter's going to interpret everything about Mark 13, that's not what he's going to do. All right? And hopefully I'll show you that I think Jesus is up to something a little bit different than knowing all of the details. So we're going to look today at the fact that Jesus knows the future, pressure will come, and Jesus is the I am. Here's the first one. Jesus knows the future. Do you notice here that uh, in this section, Jesus knows what's going to happen? He knows that. And that's not a big deal for him. And the reason why that's not a big deal for him is because he's God, and God is omniscient which means he's all-knowing. He knows everything. Um, 
In Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 to 18, Moses actually talks about one day there's going to be a prophet who's actually going to come and he's going to be like the supreme prophet out of every other prophet that's ever happened. And who do you reckon that is? Jesus, all right? So you just better believe in this passage, Jesus is being prophetic, which means he's telling something about the future because he's God and he knows the future. That shouldn't be any surprise to us. Um, so God is omniscient. What does that mean? Well, that actually means that God knows everything about you and me. He knows everything about everything, <laughs> which is Job. Let, let me read Job twenty-eight twenty-four. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. All right. So you, you, you don't hide it. He just sees everything about everything. He knows all of history, and you get that from Isaiah forty-six. All right. Uh, he de- it says in Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, it says that there's none like God declaring the end from the beginning. He knows everything. He knows everything about history. In fact, he knows what people will decide before they decide to do it. And this one, he knows what people would have decided if a certain course of action was going to happen. And this is Matthew eleven twenty one. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes all right so here's a quick summary about god's knowledge god fully knows himself talks about that in corinthians and all things actual and possible in one eternal act i'll read that again god fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one eternal act Did you get that so just think about that for a minute god never needs to learn anything new His knowledge never changes or grows and he never has to stop to think about what something means. He just always knows. So let me ask you this question. This is not a trick question. Uh, Would God ever have to count the grains of sand on the beach? Would he? Why not? He knows it, all right? Because if he had to count it, there would be a time in which he didn't know it, wouldn't he? Would God ever have to have a count in, in terms of actually count the number of hairs on your head? No, he just knows it all the time. Does he need to know, does he need to count to know how many stars there are in the sky? No, he doesn't. Like he just, he knows all things actual and possible in one eternal act like that. He just knows it. Now, this brings us to the nature of prophecy, right? What you've actually got going on in prophecy is you've got God, the all-knowing God, telling someone some of his knowledge so they can tell it to people that's basically what prophecy is okay now jesus being god himself that's a much smoother process if that makes sense he's got he's it's an inside job with him he's he's on the inside uh, of that whole process but you've got this whole uh, line of prophets in the old testament where god tells them something and then they tell it now this still happens i think Now, not in the sense that books of the Bible are being written, but I think it still happens that God tells people things and then they tell someone else about the knowledge that God has, right? Now, back in September last year, um, I uh, I remember it was a a Wednesday and it was a terrible Wednesday, like a really bad day. And uh, I don't know whether you've ever like had a really bad day and you get to the end of it and you go, I've got a lot of work to do, but tomorrow I'm just going to go and do something that... If I was on task and it was a good day yesterday, I might have 
not done that so that I could do my work but I'm just I'm out that was just a really bad day and I just need a breather right so uh, Wednesday was really really bad and uh, on the Thursday I decided I go along to the pastor's prayer time here in um, the city here probably about once a fortnight and once every three weeks uh, go out to the Highfields one a little bit too anyway so this morning I just thought no I'm just going in there and it's a really good time it's a really encouraging time so I went in there and um I went in, I just sat next to this couple. It was an older lady and a, and a husband there. And uh, oh, everything happened. There was singing kind of worship stuff. Anyway, we get to the end of the, uh, the thing and she says g'day to me. And uh, we're just trying to work out whether we've met each other before, you know, doing all that sort of stuff. And we had a bit of, a bit of small talk stuff. And then I thought, no, nah, I better go. And, you know, i got some stuff to do. And she goes, oh, she goes, I didn't know whether to tell you anything, whether to say anything to you. But she said, uh, when I was sitting there, she goes, God gave me this picture about you. And then she went to describe this picture. And do you know the picture that she gave was exactly, mapped exactly onto what had just happened in my life. And I'm just going. I said, do you know anything about anything, you know, to do with these things? She goes, no, not really. No, I don't know anything about any of that. And she just actually told me some stuff. It was like some of God's knowledge got mediated to me through her. And the cool thing was she, um, I didn't uh, get back there for a while uh, but you know she went home and she actually wrote down the exact thing that she saw and she had it on a piece of paper in a in a handbag and the next time I was there she came up to me and she goes I wrote it down for you here you go and it was really really encouraging so I think that happens I, I, I don't think that happens in a capital P prophecy like uh, I don't think what she shared with me well it's not on the same level as Isaiah in the Old Testament uh, in my view but does God share things with people that he wants them to pass on yeah I think he does there's two main uh roles for a prophet and that's uh foretelling and foretelling all right foretelling is where uh, god tells a prophet something about the future and they actually um can tell what's going to happen there i'll read this because i think it's a classic little uh, story out of second Kings six once when the king of syria was warring against israel he took counsel with his servants saying at such and such a place shall be my camp but the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. Do you see what's going on? The prophet knew that the Syrians were going there before the king of Israel knew it. He had kind of this inside information. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who is... Who of us is for the king of Israel? Do you see what he's asking? It's kind of like the king of Israel somehow knows that I'm going to go and camp down there. Every time I move, he knows where I'm going. Right? He's going, somewhat, there's a spy in the ranks. We've got to find out who this spy is. But it wasn't a spy at all. It was uh, Elisha the prophet. God kind of gave him a bit of a word about what was going to happen and he passed it on to the king. Um, and that's what one of the servants says. And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom because God knows it. So part of prophecy is foretelling and the other part of prophecy is foretelling, which is bringing what God is saying to the people. So the Old Testament wasn't just about this is what's going to happen in the future. No, the prophets in the Old Testament it was also about this is what God wants you to know. This is what you need to remember. Now, Old Testament prophecy... I think is one of the most compelling proofs out there for um, the fact that God wrote the Bible. 
Listen to this from uh, apologist Norman Geisling. He said, according to Deuteronomy 18, a prophet was false if he made predictions that were never fulfilled. No unconditional prophecy of the Bible about events to the present day has gone unfulfilled. Hundreds of predictions, some of them given hundreds of years in advance, have been literally fulfilled. The time, city and nature of Christ's birth were foretold in the Old Testament, as were dozens of other things about his life, death and resurrection. Numerous other prophecies have been fulfilled, including the uh, destruction of Edom, the curse on Babylon, the destruction of Tyre. That's, that, that's worth having a look at, right? Go and have a look at Ezekiel 26. Basically, the deal with Tyre, just give it, give it to you in 30 seconds, is Tyre, uh, the prophecy is that Tyre is going to get, the whole city is going to get scraped off the rock and thrown in the ocean, basically, is what it was. So you have these multiple nations coming up against Tyre, and in the end, what happens is um, a nation comes up against Tyre, and they battle against them, and Tyre just kind of stick their tongues out at them, and just sarcastic, and just kind of getting at them uh, for what they're doing, because Tyre actually had a whole bunch of boats, and they knew that if they got into trouble in their city, they could jump in their boats and go to the island offshore, right? So when they started to go down, when the city started to fall, they jumped into their boats, they went to the island offshore, the army was so cranky, they picked up all of the town and threw it in the ocean to make a land bridge and went over and slaughtered them, basically. So you've got this, and basically, uh, if you look at evidence that demands a verdict, like the, the prophecy is that Tyre will be reduced to a bare rock and fishermen will dry their nets on the bare rock, and that's pretty much what happens. Uh, the old city of Tyre. So um, there's some really specific stuff there. Um, the return of Israel to the land. Uh, Geisler goes on to say, other books claim divine inspiration, such as the Quran, the Book of Mormon, and parts of the Hindu Veda, but none of those books contains predictive prophecy. Note that. As a result, fulfilled prophecy is a strong indication of the unique divine authority of the Bible. All right? So what we've got here is a, a passage that's got some prophecy in it, where Jesus uh, speaks as a prophet, okay? Now, this is where it gets a little complicated, all right? Because uh, those of you who have been around long enough, you know, prophecy is far easier to interpret after it happens than before it happens. Has anyone ever noticed that? Like, some of the clearest prophecies in the Bible are in the book of Isaiah, which we know was written about 800 years before Jesus, and they're written about Jesus, like the Messianic prophecies. But the very fact that the whole Jewish nation pretty much missed it tells you that you can have clear prophecy and get an interpretation wrong uh, really, really easily. Um, and I just want to throw in at this uh, point in time, just, and, and this is probably the, the fulcrum, I guess, of uh, the message today, is there's a human tendency to want to know the details about this stuff. All right? And I want to suggest to you today that the human tendency to want to know all the details about prophecy can work against trusting in God. Okay? I think God has this way. I, I posted something on Facebook yesterday that God will provide you information. He'll reveal things to you that will encourage trust in him, but he won't give you so much that trust is unnecessary. Do you get that? And I think it looks like that with Jesus here. Because Jesus is going to give people a little bit of information, but he's not going to give them enough to know all the details. Because do you know what often happens, I think, with humans is if we can get all the details and we can know everything, then we can trust in an outcome rather than trusting in a person. It's a real danger, all right? And some of you probably know some people who get pretty fixated on working all the details out about end times kind of prophecies. And I think in this passage, hopefully you'll see by the end of it that Jesus is kind of working against that 
giving them all the details and he's saying, you need to trust me, you need to stay present in discipleship with me through all of these events. Let me uh, return to this one. This is, um, I don't mean this in a dishonourable way toward the scriptures, right? But this is just like the irony here is just thick and heavy. (laughs) All right? And I'll tell you why. This verse here says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like, that's why when I read through it, I just, you got it? Because it's kind of like, that's kind of like what Mark's saying. He said, let the reader understand. You just go, okay, <laughs> all right. Now, if I can just add to this, one of the commentators that I read made this comment about that verse. He says, it's a particularly difficult verse. He actually suggests it's probably the hardest verse to interpret in Mark, if not the whole Bible, <laughs> all right, to actually know what he's talking about. So it's, a bit, it's pretty ironic that, that Mark says, let the reader understand. Now, I'll just give you a quick snapshot, right? This phrase, the abomination of desolation, is mentioned in Daniel, the book of Daniel, okay? Um, it's, it's a bit cryptic in the book of Daniel, but it looks like it was actually fulfilled where when uh, Assyrian general Antiochus IV, um, it, look, what he did is he went into the Jewish temple in 168 BC and he erected an altar to uh, Zeus on the altar of burnt offering and then sacrificed a pig on it. All right? Now, for those of you who know anything about the Jews, I, they're not in for the pig thing, really, at all. All right? It's just off limits. So you can imagine what he's done is he's actually gone in erected an idol and then sacrificed a pig on the altar. Um, So you can see how they would have actually uh, seen that. Yet we can see, it looks like, if you go to Luke 21 verse 20, it looks like the abomination that causes desolation is actually the uh, Roman army surrounding Jerusalem at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay, That's what Luke kind of hints to it. Um, Because eventually what happened is the Temple of Zeus was actually put on the ruined site of the temple um, that was uh, that was torn down, um, so it's just a, a little snapshot, right? You got something there. You got a statement. You just kind of go, that could actually be a whole bunch of things. Uh, we're not really a hundred percent sure what it is. Uh, difficult one to kind of work out there. It looks like it's probably the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, but um, y- you know we're just going to be cautious and a little bit slow to say we know exactly. Um, what it is you see we want more detail we want more clarity maybe because we want more control maybe because we want to bypass a relational trust in jesus for a trust in a particular outcome and as i said before god will share with us things that will guard inspire and protect faith but he won't share things with us that make faith optional and i think that's what he's doing with the disciples here they say give me the details he says be careful <laughs> stay in the present stay disciples all right number two pressure will come this first one here nation will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdom you know as i mentioned before who here has ever heard someone say man there's so many earthquakes and wars going on we must be in the end times have you heard that which is kind of i mean that might be the case right but it kind of looks like what jesus is saying here is that if there's lots of earthquakes and wars, you're not in the end times. Do you see that? Like up on the screen there, it's kind of going, those things have to come, but we're not at the end yet. Um, 
And then um, this one here, many will come in my name saying, I am he. Now, um, again, the question is, is this the time after Jesus? Is this in our time? Is this in the end times, just before Jesus comes back? Well, let me uh, give you, throw a few things in there for you to think about. Uh, in the years preceding the Jewish revolt in AD 66, several messianic pretenders arose. So uh, I think you had Thutis. Um, he boasted of various signs, according to Josephus, a Jewish historian, which led many astray. There was an Egyptian um, who claimed to be a prophet, who, who kind of led people astray. Um, but just have a look up there on the screen. Um, many will come in my name saying, what are the next two words? I am. You see that? Now, if you actually look in the Greek, do you know he is not in the Greek? It's actually I am. Now, who else do you know who's called I am? God. God himself. That's what God said to Moses. In Exodus 3, he said, I am. And so what you've got is you've got people coming along and they're basically claiming, they're imposters, but they're claiming to be I am. Uh, there was other um, messianic pretenders in the second Jewish revolt in AD 132 to 135 Bar Kokhba made claim to being the Messiah he led a whole bunch of Jews astray and then we find Jesus moved to King Arai did, did you guys know that? no he has Jesus is in King Arai right now there he is as the Courier Mail in 2011, a couple who claim they are Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene have set up base in Queensland Bible Belt and are drawing in disciples from across the country. See this, the pair of real names Alan John Miller and Mary Suzanne Luck operate from rural Wilkesdale near King Arroy. Even looks like Jesus. Well, if that's what Jesus looks like. So I thought, I mean, you can, they got the whole, you, Jesus is on YouTube. Do you know all those times where you just go, if only Jesus recorded some videos so that he could just tell us, what, well, he's, he's on there. You can actually go and watch Jesus. So I brought a, a clip for you to hear from Jesus. And uh, she's, in case you didn't recognize her, she's Mary Magdalene. And, uh, and they're married. Jesus was married to someone else, but he's now divorced. And remarried Mary Magdalene because he didn't love the other woman that he was married to. I, I watched the interview. Here we go. Uh, we've got some audio there. Sweet. Welcome to the Divine Truth Frequently Asked Questions channel. I am Jesus, but most people call me AJ or Alan John Miller. And I'm Mary Magdalene, but most people call me Mary Luck. Divine Truth is God's truth, which can be discovered by anyone should they desire to know it. Jesus and I have spent the last 2,000 years discovering and experimenting with God's truths. And we're passionate about sharing what we've discovered with others. So all of the videos you will see on this channel are frequently asked questions. In other words, they are questions that are asked by members of the public, members of the media, and also at our seminars. And they've been broken into a single question and a single answer on a specific subject. There are many different subjects, many different playlists, uh, all about God's truth, God's love, and also about our personal life and other subjects. 
So we'd encourage you to send in any questions that you may have about Divine Truth. And the way to do that is by emailing faq at divinetruth.com. So you can email Jesus. See, some of you go, I've been wanting to do that for years. Well, you can. You can email Jesus now. Now, a quick note, right? You could ask, so these false messiahs, is that like after Jesus, in the short time after Jesus? Is it end times? I don't know, right? But let's just be honest about it. They're still around and they're at King Arroy. So be careful. Be aware of them, all right? The, um, the next uh, pressure that you actually see there in... Um, the third one down there is uh, persecution. Uh, they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Why? To bear witness. Like the way that that's phrased actually sounds like the purpose of persecution is to bear witness. Uh, the uh, second century church father, Tertullian, uh, is summarised as saying the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And uh, it's true. I mean, people, you know, you can, you can sign up for regular email updates from Voice of the Martyrs and you know that there's Christians all over the world that are being uh, slaughtered because they follow Jesus. And it was certainly the case within the early church. I mean, there's uh, the book of Acts. In Acts 8, verse 1 to 3, actually speaks of uh, an increase of persecution. And Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You know what the difference, one of the main differences is, there's lots of differences, but one of the main differences is between early Islam and early Christianity. The first 300 years of Islam was convert or die. The first 300 years of Christianity was convert out of following Jesus or die. Do you see the difference? One of them's killing other people and the other people being killed for following Jesus. Huge difference. But here's the reality, folks. God actually wants to bring about his purposes through persecution. Are you up for it? Do you see that? There'll be beatings, imprisonments, so that you can be a witness. Now, you actually see this in Philippians 1, verse 12 and 13. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See that? You're thrown in jail. Why? So that everyone, I mean, you've got to be impressed, you know. On a human level, you've got to be impressed with Paul. It's like they threw me in jail and I've told everyone the gospel. I've told everyone about Jesus. Everyone knows that I'm in here to talk about Jesus. That's why I'm in here. And then this, you've got the first half of this verse in the Mark 13 passage. You notice it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And Matthew 24, 14 adds this bit, and then the end will come. You telling people about Jesus is you being a trigger on Jesus coming back. You see that? But the truth is that it's just going to hurt for a lot of people. I mean, 2 Timothy goes even further. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. 
Uh, I could ask you to put your hand up, like, who wants to live a godly life? You know, and you'd, you'd probably go, yeah, that's me. Well, listen to what Paul says in Timothy. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you can get persecuted because you're an idiot, right? But that's not what this is talking about. It's not because you're painful and you're boorish and you irritate people, okay? It's because of the message that you've got that people would actually hate it. And in fact, people will hate it so much at times that it'll be people on the inside that are after you. So you notice there down the bottom there, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Are you up for that? I mean, that's going to test out your fear of man, isn't it? Like your fear of approval or lack of. You see, just think about it, right? It's one thing to have an enemy. It's a whole other thing when that enemy becomes someone from the inside, from your own family. Who here knows that internal attacks are more caustic than external ones? Like, it's hard, isn't it? Like, it's, it's like, man, this is, you know, you can, enemies, you can have lots of people against you, you go, this is hard. But, like, when your own family turns against you and people who are meant to be on your team turn against you and strive against you, it's just gutting. You know what I'm talking about? It's just hard. It's like you can have a big victory and you can come home and your family can just pull the rug out from underneath you and you fall back and you whack your head on the floor and you feel concussed for a few days. You know, it's it's like I can't even, you know, I don't even know how to go forward. And who wants to be hated by everyone? Now, the truth is that we probably don't have a lot of this in our culture, do we? But I tell you, in our culture, if you're a Christian and you want to say something carefully about uh, homosexuality or homosexual marriage, you're going to get some haters. True? I mean, there's, there's some areas there. And, and is it likely to get worse? Well, maybe. Maybe. Now, I'm not talking about going out and being a pain in the horny for people all over the place, right? I'm just saying the actual, the core message of the gospel is going to be is really going to stir some people up. And I'm really asking you today, are you going to be okay with that? I'm not going to say, is it going to be easy or not painful? You don't have to do any of that. But like, have you actually, are you actually settled on the fact that that's actually going to happen sometimes? Commentator uh, Morrison uh, made this comment. He said, as there is nothing that excites such love as the gospel when intelligently received, so there is nothing that occasions such hate as this same gospel when passionately rejected. It's true, and some of you know about that. Some of you know the truth of Luke 12 where Jesus says, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I'll tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there'll be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you know what they're talking about there. You know what I'm saying, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's, what he's doing is he's bringing a new kingdom and new lordship and people who submit to him are not going to be under other kingdoms and other lords the way they were. And I want to just ask you at this point in time whether you actually believe in, functional, in a functional way in an inoffensive gospel. Now, we do a lot at the project and churches do a lot to contextualize the truth about god for people right but let me ask you this if you told someone the gospel if you told them about jesus 
and what he's done for them, and they hated you for it or they ridiculed you for it, what would be your um, reflex thought out of that? Like, would you think they are not up for this at all? Or would you think, I mustn't have said it right? Because if I say it right, it's always going to go well. Do you get what I'm saying? Because I actually find that thought in me a bit. And I just think, when it doesn't go well, you know, and it's true. Maybe you could say it a lot better. But do you know what Jesus is saying here? Is even when you say it the best way possible, people are going to hate you for it. And can you be okay with that? in that moment how did you go last time you shared Jesus with someone and they rejected you for it even though there was nothing wrong with what you were saying how'd you go Uh, when do you pull away from talking about Jesus because you're concerned about what other people are going to think about you if you actually say that so the disciples started this whole thing that we're looking at, this whole passage today, saying, give us some details, Jesus. What does Jesus kick straight into, as I mentioned earlier, but that telling them that they need to watch? They need to be careful. So in verse 5, you see there, see that no one leads you astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. But be on your guard. Verse 23, but be on your guard. Keep awake. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's doing what I was mentioning earlier. He's always pulling the disciples back into present-day discipleship. What are you doing in this moment? Don't get caught up and, and be out in the future there somewhere. What are you actually doing in this moment with me? And for those of you who have been around long enough in Mark, this is classic Jesus, isn't it? It's never theoretical with Jesus. He's always bringing the theory into the practice. No theological problem can be considered in isolation with Jesus. It doesn't exist in isolation. It always has practical relevance. So he's saying, here's what's going to happen. Be careful. Here's what's going to happen. Be on your guard. Stay connected. Here's the last point today. Jesus is I am. You notice this in verse 6. People came claiming they were I am. In Exodus 3, as we mentioned, God says that he's I am. And notice this. This is uh, after the storm in the boat. Mark 6.50. Immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Now the Greek actually says, I am. It's I am. You don't need to worry, it's I am. Don't be afraid. And then in Mark 14.61-62, when he was before the council, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. He's a pot stirrer, this uh, Jesus, isn't he? Don't you think? Just stir the pot. And it's like, are you the son? You know, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? I am. <laughs> stir it right up. Right in the middle of this uh, passage in Mark 13 that we're looking at, you know what it says? It says, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious before him what you are to say, but say whatever he's given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Do you know what? My point is, Jesus is I am. What is I am if not present? Have you thought about that? Like, what's the tense of I am? It's like present tense all the time, isn't it? It's like I am, and, and like I am, you know, past and future tense, it's just like I am. I am everywhere. And it's kind of like in this uh, scripture here, Jesus is saying, listen, 
when you get in and you get beat up and you get put you know, before a kangaroo court and it all gets really messy for you, I'm going to be right there with you. I'm going to be right there beside you. They wanted a sign for the things that were going to happen so they'd be okay. He said, no, be careful. This is what's going to happen. I'll be with you. And I want to just revisit quickly something about biblical prophecies. All right? One of the things about biblical prophecies, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, is that they can have multiple fulfillments. So one of the classic uh, scriptures on um, Christmas is the one about Emmanuel, a baby being born in Emmanuel, which is Isaiah 7, which appears to have a, a, a kind of modern day fulfillment as well as a, a, another fulfillment down the track. And what you actually find with biblical prophecies is that they have a number of, they can often have a number of fulfillments. And it's a bit like looking at a mountain range, okay? If I asked you how many mountains there were there, you'd probably say two. But if you actually go side on to a mountain range, you'll see one. Okay? And they're all kind of coming out of the same prophecy. So if you can, if you can kind of get that in your head, I'm just going to mess with your head just a little bit more and then we'll finish. Okay? So if you can get, get that in your head, that'd be good. So one of the things the Old Testament prophesies about quite often is the day of the Lord. Okay, and that's a good example of a prophecy that has multiple fulfillments. Okay, and we can, I can go into that more with you later if you'd like me to do that. There's a, um, an Australian uh, Sydney kind of evangelical theologian who's way above my pay grade and he's really smart. I think his name's Peter Bolt. And he actually asserts that this whole section in Mark 13 is actually about the cross. Okay. And it's not about the fall of Jerusalem and it's not about end times. He actually says the whole thing is actually about the cross. And he actually says uh, things like this. He says, uh, when you look at the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, he's going, what better uh, explanation of that than that the Lord of the universe will be judged guilty by human court and then crucified on a Roman cross and have the sins of the world poured into him? You know, you get... In the back end there of Mark, um, the next section down, which we haven't um, read, uh, Mark 13, verse 24, it says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Now, it's interesting because most people would say that's the last time when Jesus comes back, right? But Peter Bolt's kind of going, no, that's, that's actually Jesus on the cross. He's actually doing all of that on the cross. And so you get this kind of thing with the mountain scene where you, you've got a few things happening at the same time. And then there's another scripture in there in Mark 13 that says there's going to be suffering and tribulation and hardship like the world has never, ever seen. Now, if you think about all of the history that preceded um, Jesus dying on the cross and preceded this passage it's been some brutal stuff right like that's going to take a lot to have something really brutal now that may be end times which a lot of people say but if you look at Jesus on the cross you go there is no more brutal suffering that has ever happened in the history of the world than what happened on the cross right so you can kind of see uh, Peter Bolt's kind of uh, perspective there that there's something else going on in this prophecy as well and it has to do with Jesus on the cross Here's where I want to finish. I want to finish and say this with you. It actually is Jesus' death on the cross that paves the way, that bankrolls the possibility for God to be with you in the midst of any trouble that's going to come your way. Do you get that? 
So it's okay. It's okay. God, God's not surprised by it. He knows all about it. And so he'll let you know some stuff, a bit like he did with the disciples. Um, he's, he's let us know some stuff in the Bible and just said, look, this, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And we're going, yeah, but when? He's just going, well, it's just going to happen. You just need to stay tight with me. That's what you need to do. Stay in the present. Stay my disciple in, in the middle of all of this. You'll be okay. Don't get fixated upon end time stuff don't get fixated about wanting to know who Gog and Magog is you know in Revelation does anyone know what I'm talking about it's the Russians and then it's this person I don't know I don't know it's just like stay in the present I'm with you in the present my death on the cross means that I'm with you and I'm going to help you just stay there I think Jesus in Mark 13 is intentionally ambiguous there's enough in Mark 13 to warn us and help us but it's only enough to drive us to him in trust and relationship. And I'll finish with what I said earlier. God will share with us things that will guard, inspire and protect faith. He will not share with us things that make faith optional. And I think he does that in Mark 13.